This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. A new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Tensors are the mathematical objects used in Einstein's general theory of relativity. And now they're in poster form. We have a lovely 24 by 36 inch poster that we made about tensors. And it's available on Facebook.com slash Breaking Math Podcast. Just click on Shop. The posters are matte, full color, and make a perfect addition to any office. So for $15.15, plus $4.50 shipping and handling, a total of $19.65, you can get this poster for you or someone you know. So check it out at facebook.com slash breakingmathpodcast. When you click on store, and if you like our show and have a wall, I'm sure it's right for you. We're on Patreon at patreon.com slash breakingmath. You can go there if you want to support the show. Even a $1 donation makes all the difference to us. If you enjoy the program, how about the opportunity to be essential to our show? And we'll send you a thank you message with $1 or more. You gain access to episodes slightly early and without ads. We also include the outlines we use to produce the show. And of course, we really appreciate all of our fans. And we would certainly appreciate your patronage at patreon.com slash breaking math. For news about the show, we're on Twitter at Breaking Math Pod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Breaking Math Podcast. And we have an interactive website at BreakingMathPodcast.app. Tweet us your math and science memes. The world may depend on it. Tweet at us, interact with the host. Sophia is SciPod Sophia with an F. Gabriel is TechPod Gabe, and Meryl is FuturePod Meryl. Get in touch with us at BreakingMathPodcast at gmail.com with questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, and anything else you might think would benefit our show. You can also send us an email at BreakingMathPodcast at gmail.com. Michael Brooks is a science writer who specializes in making difficult concepts easier to grasp. In his latest book, Brooke goes through several mathematical concepts and discusses their motivation, history, and discovery. So how do stories make it easier to learn? What are some of the challenges associated with conveying difficult concepts to the general public? And who, historically, has been a mathematician? All this and more on this episode of Breaking Math. Episode 69 an interview with author Michael Brooks. I'm Sophia. And I'm Gabriel. And I'm Meryl. And you're listening to Breaking Math. With us, we have on Michael Brooks. Hi. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. I see this is your second book. Real quick, can you tell us a little bit about your first book? And then the next question will be, tell us about what motivated you for your second book. Uh, okay, well, actually, I mean, there's been quite a few books. So, so there's been sort of four or five. There was a big um, success with my first book, which was 13 Things That Don't Make Sense, uh, which was probably like a decade ago now. And that was a, that was a book about scientific anomalies. Uh, and uh, since then, I've written books about kind of, you know, what the next discoveries might be. 
and about you know how science actually works. Oh, and um, uh, just to clarify, by scientific anomalies, do you mean like quasars and stuff? I mean things like dark energy and dark matter, where you know ninety six percent of the universe seems to be missing, yeah, you know, and scientists can't understand what it is. So, so it's about things that scientists are working on but haven't really yet figured out, and and kind of it was motivated by the Isaac Asimov quote where he says. Uh, the most important thing to hear in science is not Eureka, but that's funny. And uh, it's just kind of like, you know, that those things are the, the things where you get breakthrough. So, um, but this book was in, inspired really by kind of going through decades of, you know, being a science writer. And, you know, I, I trained as a physicist, I did a PhD in quantum physics. And uh, I just kind of, you know, had this growing realization that behind everything, was sitting this this you know, bedrock of mathematics, right? That that nobody really kind of engages with properly in society, as far as I can understand. You know, you kind of leave it for other people to do um, in a lot of cases, unless you're like actually working in the field or doing something technical. If people didn't understand just how important um, mathematics was, not just for doing like technical stuff in the 21st century, but actually it was important right from the start of kind of humanity starting to you know, settle into agriculture and building cities and, and finding ways to you know, create great architecture and, and art. So, so it was kind of an exploration of all that stuff that maths has actually been doing for us for you know, millennia rather than just thinking about, oh, you know, it's maths that makes Google work. Nice. And I really like the story approach that you took to everything. Um, I was talking to Gabriel right before we did the podcast and I was telling him how uh, when I'm having trouble with like a math or science concept, sometimes I look at the history section on uh, Wikipedia and kind of see the motivation for the problem, where this came from. Was it a puzzle? Was it a real problem being solved? And um, I mean, your chapter on Napier and logarithms kind of, I think, shows that process beautifully. But let me ask you, question just to get this not necessarily started but to keep things going how do stories make it easier to learn oh i think because it, it just engages all of us all of our humanity if you like because i think you know you know we're much more motivated as you say you know you can kind of get your brain switched on much more if you understand why you're learning something or where it came from and what it might be useful for so if I tell stories about, you know, where this math came from, automatically you're like, oh, okay, I can see what problem they were trying to solve, or I can see there was a person behind this who, you know, and, and when we see human beings doing stuff, it's much more interesting and engaging than when we just see, you know, equations on a, on a board. I mean, I, and I think this sort of goes down to, you know, how we learn in school and, and, you know, particularly how we learn mathematics, you know, it tends to be, you know, here's how to solve this problem. Uh, here's how to pass this exam. Here's how to get, you know, yourself from A to B in terms of learning math and, and, and progressing to the next level without ever really understanding where these things came from and why you're learning them. And, and it's interesting because with a lot of math, I think you can say, um, well, you don't need to learn it. Like, you know, I would say like 80% of people are never going to use a quadratic equation in their, you know, once they've left school kind of thing. But actually to learn that quadratic equations and their solutions were kind of part of Babylonian culture to like help them collect taxes and understand how to, you know, how to kind of run a civilization because you need the money and, and you need to tax people. And how do you do that fairly? And, and, you know, and it comes down to working out the areas of fields and things like that. And to me, that sort of brings the whole idea of, you know, algebra to life much more than just, you know, here's the, here's the equation, here's how to solve it, and then move on to the next one. That's, I really, really appreciate you, uh, you uh, saying that and about that, that touches on why math can be frustrating for a lot of people or why a lot of folks might not get it. I found that in my degree, my undergrad in electrical engineering, uh, there were times where I was doing a derivative of e to the x so many times that I didn't even think about it. I didn't yeah. even appreciate it. I just knew you do this to this symbol and you get this and then I move on because the test is too big and I can't appreciate what e to the x is and what a, and why is a derivative of e to the x just e to the x i don't know but i just do it I, I just do it you know don't ask questions so it's the opportunity to to actually read a book like yours or or similar books and and and, and to see the bigger picture of what it actually means i think that is so necessary for people to you know really understand the beauty of mathematics because they're missing so much so i just think that's that's awesome um one of the questions i had for you well it's kind of a two-parter here i haven't i have a rough outline of questions i made I want to ask you about putting together this book. One of the two questions is, 
what was the hardest concept to research and put into layman's terms. But then a, a dovetail question is, tell us about the order of your book. And, and I mean, obviously it's chronological, but like uh, the, the structure of your book, like um, yeah. what did you learn about yourself and your understanding of math as you put the book together? Oh, um, <laughs> so I, let me start at the beginning. So, so the hardest thing that I think I had to come to terms with weirdly was probably not like the hardest mathematical thing. Um, but I found when I was trying to explain how logarithms work and where they came from, and you know, and I was looking at the work of, of John Napier and saying, oh, you know, this guy like did you know ten million entries and it took him twenty years to you know, to create the first sort of book of of log tables and working out exactly what he did and how he kind of calculated these things like be, you know I, I sort of go into it in the book like beads moving along a wire and you calculate the angle and the sign of the angle and then that sort of gives you the logarithm is the length that's left on the top of here and then you progress to the next thing and the next thing it was just one of those things where i just got this terrible mental block and i was just like i can't get my head around what he did and and uh, sort of feeling like you know this is ridiculous you know this was like the 17th century the guy was you know it wasn't complicated math particularly but there was something in me that was just like, oh, this is this is hard, and and I think that's probably true of everything for everybody. You know, like everybody has these things that they find quite easy to visualize and conceptualize, and other people just sort of you know find find them hard. You know, I I didn't find derivatives and calculus that hard to sort of to get my head around. I I, I think information theory, which is my last chapter, is 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 sort of much more conceptually difficult in some ways. But um, as far as the structure of the book goes, it just made sense to me to start with arithmetic, right? Because it's, you know, that's the first thing we did. And it's kind of the basis of everything. And once you understand, you know, what numbers are and what they're not as well, you know, they're not these real things. They're, they're these concepts and these ability, these things that act as tools, you know, for us to grab and then sort of, you know, do trade or, you know, keep accounts and, and do that kind of thing. Uh, then you start to see how from there you go to measuring like, oh, well, you know, how long is this length of, of rope or something like that? And then you, so you get into geometry from that and the shapes. And so, so, you know, the first two chapters are arithmetic and geometry. And then, you know, we're sort of getting into algebra and calculus, which are the kind of next things to really come along. So, so a lot of it is, is kind of logically, you know, kind of chronological, I guess. Um, but I did then want to sort of get into um, things like imaginary numbers. I mean, you know, as an engineer, you'll, appreciate imaginary numbers you know are just the most fantastic things and not at all imaginary and uh, or no more imaginary than other numbers anyway and and so incredibly sort of useful and and you know literally built silicon valley literally built electronics and the electrical uh, sort of age of the early 20th century you know everything was sort of predicated on us being able to manipulate these imaginary numbers and i i just kind of felt like you know they were so important and so underappreciated uh, in the world that they kind of get, you know, it's like, okay, they get their own chapter and that's, you know, that's just going to be how it is. It's my book. I do it how I want. And, um, and then uh, statistics, I felt, was another thing that like, didn't necessarily fit chronologically, but I think it's a really important thing. And again, certainly where I am in the UK, you know, we don't really teach it in schools. People don't really get to it until they're doing a, a technical subject. At university for, for the most part and then for most people that's not ever going to happen right so so and statistics is so important if you get a grasp of statistics and you can navigate the world so much better than than if you can't um so i felt like you know that was a really important mathematical breakthrough in terms of our civilization and the way the world works for us is you've got to kind of understand where statistics come from especially in an age of like you know of, of compressed data that's you know, streaming through the internet, and, and you know, everything is done statistically. And then finally, the final chapter, um, which is about information, um, that's, I mean, it's kind of the, the work of one guy, Claude Shannon, and it comes sort of, you know, through really the, the sort of the middle third of the, of the 20th century, you know, is the information age where everything sort of gets established. And again, that's a, that's a thing that people live with every day, they're, they're living the consequences of Claude Shannon's work, but nobody really, you know, outside of the subject really knows that much about him. His name isn't, you know, isn't well known. He's not Einstein, 
So uh, for me, it was such an important thing to be able to say, look, you know, this is the age you're living in. It's a mathematical age, and, and it comes from this you know, part of maths called information theory, which has set up so much in our, in our daily lives. And so, again, I just thought, you know, this is an important thing to include if we're talking about how we build civilization. Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And it seems like your focus on the whole book was civilization. I mean, you've mentioned that several times. Um, stories making it easier for humans to grasp concepts. You met, uh, touched on that earlier. Um, I wanted to ask you, after doing research for this book, what can you conclude about historically who was a mathematician? Oh. Like, it seems like a lot of time, and this is something I always noticed in school, was that you have these people, it's like they seem to have immense resources at their disposal. Um, is uh, Do you have any comment on that? Well, I, I think, you know, it, in different times, um, you know, before we had, you know, grand universities and academia, you, know, you didn't really have to engage with numbers in the same way, perhaps in daily life, you know, I mean, if you're trading in a market, you're doing arithmetic, you're doing basic stuff. Um, and there's relatively few people who are doing like, innovation, like, you know, creating new maths and being a mathematician. And, um, you know, so you have people like Cardano in the 16th century who is, um, you know, coming up with new solutions for the algebraic equations, but he's working as a teacher at a university. Um, John Napier is, is a, you know, a Scottish aristocrat nobleman you know he's, he's got family money so so a lot of the innovation i think comes from people who have the leisure time to to be spending doing that kind of thing but every in everyday life you know people could do arithmetic um there's an interesting thing around when cardano was doing his uh, he wanted to write this book on algebra and uh, he gets into this you know, massive um fight feud with a guy called uh, nicolo tartaglia over him publishing you know what was supposed to be a secret result and um, at that time, mathematicians were, you know, were looking for jobs and, and uh, looking for employment and looking for people who would pay them to do the maths. And, and it was important to them to be the best sort of around. And they, and they would effectively do public duels. You know, they would, they would do mathematical competitions in the streets. So this is in like Renaissance Italy. And, uh, and people would watch these competitions and see, you know, who was, which mathematician was solving this and, and which one couldn't do that. And, and so I think there may well have been a situation where in certain regions of the world, you know, you had people who, you know, were just running market stalls or, or you know, selling cloth from a, a, a shop or something, but actually had an appreciation of maths. And, and at the time, you know, people were actually circulating pamphlets about what these disputes were about and about algebra and, you know, how algebra works and why Tartaglia is saying this and, and why Cardano is doing that and, you know, what this all comes from. So I think, you know, you had specialized mathematicians who were pretty few and far between. But actually, you also had, I think, people were generally sort of cognizant of numbers and, and how numbers work and the fact that mathematics was generally, you know, kind of venerated and important. That's how this fascinating. me. Also, I want to like go into the past and see these. I'm just imagining two mathematicians in a circle and everybody's like throwing dice, trading money. Yeah. Like betting on the mathematician. I mean, the, the funny thing, one of the funny things about Cardano is um, that he uh, he invented probability theory. He was the first person to write you know, write out probability theory, and he did it because he had a gambling problem. So you know he he kind of was losing money, <laughs> um, and uh, and sort of worked out you know what how he should bet when he was you know was placing these bets. You know he kind of worked out you know if if there's you know the, this number of cards in a deck and I need you know one of you know six of these and you know these are the odds of me working this out. So so it was a very practical discipline really in those days. I, I like how it's practical, but he's still betting things. So he's, isn't yeah. that essentially a martingale? <laughs> I mean, he, he actually, I mean, he was kind of the only guy in the whole world who knew uh, how this whole thing worked and he was still losing money. So it was amazing. <laughs> it reminds me of those people who work on slot machines who still use them. Oh my <laughs> gosh. That's, that's wild, isn't that? That is so Yeah, wild. they'll go on their lunch break and after manipulating statistic and manipulate themselves. Yeah, I know. There, yeah, so the human brain itself is so prone to error. That's 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 crazy. That's, that's so crazy. true. So I want to know um, two questions. Who's your favorite mathematician in the book, and who's the most eclectic to you? I mean, I know Montpellier is pretty eclectic, and we talked a little bit about one of our episodes 
uh, the story about uh, he, um, he, one of his servants was stealing stuff, so they made everyone touch a um, a black rooster in a dark room, and the person without soot on their hands that was on the rooster was the person who was stealing. And uh, uh, just like you know, he's a fascinating uh, character. But who are your favorite characters in mathematics? Well, um, that's, uh, it, so I guess Cardano has to be uh, up there. Um, I mean, I, I, I one of my other books was about Cardano and about the role that he played in. Um, in sort of establishing the foundations for quantum theory, which is kind of my discipline. Um, so I, I wrote that book about him, and, and so I guess I've always been fascinated by him. But I, uh, I think also his his arch rival, his nemesis, Niccolo Tartaglia, really impressed me when, the more I dug into his life, because you know he had this thing where he was you know using maths and developing maths, and and you know he had this appalling backstory where he, he was maimed as a child by some French soldiers, uh, and uh, you know he could hardly um, talk as a child, um, and, which is why he was called uh, Tartaglia, which is called which means the stammerer, right? So he he couldn't really talk properly because he, he got maimed by this Frenchman's sword as a child, He's, and he just pulled himself up, really educated himself. You know, he had about six days of schooling and then stole the teacher's maths book and, and the kind of, or, you know, <laughs> textbook and, and like kind of took off with it and so he could teach himself the rest of it because he couldn't afford any more school. And he actually became a really, really great scholar. And, um, and not only that, but he was, a, you know, he was a pretty interesting human being in that he developed the science of art artillery. So he had invented the, the mathematics of you know, how to aim a cannon. So he was the first person to kind of write down the kind of you know formulas for how to aim a cannon if you want it you know if you have it um at a certain angle with a barrel you know you, you'll get this kind of distance um and that's pre-newton right yeah yeah yes yeah, very much so and he um he just tore up all his notes because he realized this was going to be used for killing people and uh, and he didn't want any anything to do it so so he's just he actually burned his manuscript and uh, and wow. said you know i'm not I'm not having anything to do with this. This is a terrible thing because I've realized what I've done is just facilitate, you know, humans murdering each other. And then eventually um, he, uh, he, was, you know, he was in Renaissance Italy. There were the Crusades going on. There was, the, the kind of, there was a kind of um, um, uh, Islamic insurgents into Europe and, and they were fighting. You know, there was lots of fighting between the, the Catholic Church and, and, the, and the Islamic uh, forces. And um, in the end, he felt like, oh, you know, God wants me to kind of you know, do this work. So, so he, for religious reasons, he kind of redid all his calculations and wrote them out and, and showed uh, the sort of uh, the generals how to aim their artillery. But he had this real crisis of conscience, which I really like, you know, and that, that goes on. You know, that, that's a very human thing. Like we still have that now. You know, the scientists who work on the atomic bomb, they were they were really sort of torn in it for the most part about what they were doing and whether it was a good thing. And I, and I think it kind of shows how intimate the the interaction between mathematics and and humanity and civilization really is wow uh, you know the way you said that i really really firmly appreciate the interweaving like like two strands of dna between the humanity and you know and, and the stories and the geopolitical conflicts and yeah. mathematics yeah so yeah. the whole story element just makes it really really rich so uh yeah wow that's that's really cool um, I have a whole bunch of questions that have come up but i would like to give the floor to meryl how are you doing meryl uh, doing well. And I wanted to say that one thing that's been mentioned as well, um, I am fascinated by the story of one particular chapter in this book, um, also having an engineering background. I think we all have at least some, a little bit of engineer in us. One thing that always, you know, appealed to me was imaginary numbers in particular. And so that's one thing um, I enjoyed was how you started with the story of Fender and how amplifiers as we know them would just yeah. not exist because without imaginary numbers yeah it, it's an incredible thing to think that i mean it was really hard to to produce electrical circuits because you know if you're an electrical engineer today you know exactly how to design uh, any circuit that you want to do so that it's, it's sort of fairly straightforward because you use uh, you use imaginary numbers as a, a j symbol in in, in all these equations mm -hmm. 
And, and when um, we were looking to kind of first sort of roll out electricity into cities, you know, make it something where, you know, people just had it in their homes and their offices and factories and things, um, everyone was working in terms of sines and cosines and these like ridiculously cumbersome calculations um, for, you know, what a circuit would do and, 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 and how to predict, you know, and how to design the circuit that you want. And it was just sort of impossible. And then along comes um, Charles Steinmetz in, I think it was 1893 at the Chicago World Fair and just sort of says, hey guys, you know, you can like get rid of the whole of the sine and cosine problem with your alternating current if you just use imaginary numbers and, and kind of just completely revolutionizes the way that engineers can work, which brings you, you know, radio, you know, circuits and, 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 and it just becomes easy to kind of produce these manuals for, for how to produce radio circuits and how to you know, produce all the electronic circuits. So, so it just becomes like common like to be able to, um, to manipulate electric circuits. And, and, uh, and uh, Leo Fender was working as a radio repair guy and, um, and just sort of you know, then branched out into kind of PA systems for, for you know, events and then into amplifiers. And, and then you know, we got the, the Fender electric guitar amp and you know it's kind of the rest is history and and it's all all sort of stems from that sort of twist where you bring imaginary numbers into into the game and suddenly everything's possible right because instead of your regular idea of voltage or current now we have phasers which phasers with an o not an e it's not the star trek kind (laughs) um but also things like you know we don't think of terms we don't think as much in terms of capacitance or inductance or resistance. Now we have impedance, which is complex and accounts yeah. for all of those things. Yeah. And then that can tell us, you know, now we have magnitude and phase all wrapped into one. And the more you learn about how complex numbers as a whole work, well, you're thinking of it as a vector with a magnitude and an angle. Well, all these different things are possible now. And I still, to this day, the way it all, you keep seeing those interrelations, the more different things you work with, and it just all keeps coming back to that. Yeah. And I love the fact that you know, these complex numbers are just, you know, they are a mix of what we call real and what we call imaginary numbers. But actually, they're just two sets of, of numbers that allow us to work in these, you know, in these kind of multifaceted ways. So, so you know, I think when people first come across them, imaginary numbers seem absolutely terrifying, but they're no different to normal numbers, you know, and, and it's just this whole system of complex numbers allows you to just do something that's just, you know, kind of out of this world. But that's the amazing thing, though, is it's also very in this world. And I think it was, (laughs) I think it was when I took a class in undergrad on signal processing that it really hit me like a brick that complex numbers describe something, you know, very, they quantify something that they're tangible, that, oh, you don't just have, because if you start thinking in frequency, now you have, you know, you have your frequencies, but you also have the phase. And now we can account for both of those because phase is just an angle shift. And that's yeah. mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. And you know, for me, you can't have quantum physics without imaginary numbers, without complex numbers. It just <laughs> doesn't work. You literally, you know, the theory isn't there without that. Right. And that's something I'm a little less well versed in, if you would like to um, go into more detail on that. Well, I mean, I, I'll just, uh, just a little bit. Basically, um, because we describe things using the Schrodinger wave equation, and um, it's exactly the same as, as in you know, signal processing, electrical engineer. You've basically got a wave that's kind of you know, that's progressing. Uh, and so anything that you describe as a wave, you, know, you use um, imaginary numbers. So whether it's signal processing in electronics or, or in uh, you know, the, the wave function of a quantum object, like a, a proton or a, you know, a photon of light or whatever, uh, then you, you use exactly this, the phase and the, and the magnitude in order to, um, to fully describe this thing. And it's an incredibly successful thing where you, know, you can build a theory you know, that involves a, a wave equation with complex numbers in it, and it describes the most fundamental entities in the universe. I wanted to bring up too that, wasn't it Descartes? I think it was Descartes who um, didn't believe in negative numbers completely. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> just I mean, learning that kind of made me realize, oh, wait, an imaginary number, is, a complex number is not a pair of real numbers any more than a negative number is a pair of uh, real numbers. Like you could do negative three is five minus eight or whatever, you know, and they're both positive. But. I think our concept of numbers is, is something we take so for granted now, right? Because it's one of the first things we learn when we're babies. You know, our, our, our parents will sort of teach us these number rhymes and we'll learn to count and we'll... 
and we'll start to associate yeah, two objects with the number two. And, and so we think of numbers as, you know, they're like our companions through life. And then, um, but those are all like normal counting numbers effectively, aren't they? So, so, you know, as a child, you learn to count, you know, up to, and you keep going and you keep going and you think, oh, I can count up to 10,000. And then your friend says, I can do 10,001. And, and it's, you know, it's like this goes on forever. And that's all great. But actually, um, we're in a position where, you know, then suddenly sometimes there's just a, like a, an abrupt shift. So people bring in things like, you know, somebody starts using negative numbers and saying, okay, well, you know, we can have these positive numbers. We've had them all of human history. And then, like, you know, just literally a few hundred years ago, really, people started saying, okay, but what about these negative numbers? You know, and, and it was much earlier in, in China and India, I have to say, than it was in the West. And, and people, yeah, they used uh, red ink, right? Sorry? For negative. I just wanted to point out that uh, our modern accounting practice of using uh, red to do negative numbers actually comes from China, but I didn't yeah, mean to so interrupt. It, yeah, it, it comes from uh, Chinese um, who used maths for accounting and business and, and used negative numbers to symbolize debt. And, and so it just became really um, easy for them to kind of do uh, more complex accounting because they were basically using debt uh, and in India too. Uh, and, and using these concepts just you know to do business, uh, but in the West we kind of had this conceptual you know brick wall where it's like you can't have this, uh, which is why you get Descartes saying you know people say say that you know you can take away you know eight from four, but you can't you know that's ridiculous and um, and, and sort of it, it amuses me that I mean Descartes was this incredible luminary in mathematics, but now you you know you would have elementary school children who would teach him a thing or two. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. <laughs> yeah, that's that's incredible. That's incredible. I have a quick question for you. This is a very, very exciting time. I say quick question. I'm a liar. <laughs> this is a very, very exciting time in science communications. And I know that you had mentioned that you have a PhD in quantum physics. Uh, this question is inspired by a couple other science communicators on YouTube. I don't know if you have any favorite YouTube science communicators. Do, do you have any? My, my favorite, I shouldn't say favorite. Yeah, I admired mean, ones. I, I really admire. Um, there's a woman called Sabine Hossenfelder who, who does. Um, I have her on my phone right now. Oh, That's okay, her. Yeah. That's her. And yes. She's yes. Great. She's just great. And I, mean, I do know her. You know, we've, we've met a couple of times, you know, in the times when back, back when we were allowed to meet. Uh, but she's a German scientist. Uh, and I just think she's incredibly smart and funny and also brave. I think she's quite a courageous yeah. communicator. I think she is. Now, here is why I wanted to bring up her, and her channel is called Science Without the Gobbledygook. Yeah. There is another YouTube channel that is done by PBS. Uh, it's called PBS Space Time by Dr. Matt Dowd, I believe is his name. Right. Recently, uh, Sabine re released a video critiquing one of his videos, and uh, he he loved it. He appreciated the, the, um, the comments. So his video was about something called the quantum... Uh, oh gosh, the quantum eraser experiment. Are you familiar with the quantum eraser yeah, experiment? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Have you seen her takedown of that video and showing that it's actually nothing whatsoever? So do you know what? I haven't seen that video, uh, but I can imagine what she's saying. <laughs> so okay. um, because it's it's a big. Um, so Sabine's uh, take on the quantum eraser, I think, will be that. Um, there are certain ways of interpreting this experiment. And, and it's basically an experiment that says you can alter the behavior of a, um, or the character maybe is a better way of saying of a particle, of a quantum object. I don't know how to describe these things because they're not waves and they're not particles. So let's call them quantum objects. 
and you can alter their character uh, by doing something after that character has kind of been formed already. So, so the quantum eraser seems to suggest that you can kind of have this um, backwards in time action on on stuff. And um, and Sabine's uh, take on that, I think, is is that actually there are complexities in how we interpret those experiments that people don't really talk about. So people have generally in quantum physics really just sort of you know um, allowed a few different interpretations but a very few, like two or three, of what's going on in quantum physics to, to take over. And you know, famously, people say, oh, you know, Schrodinger's cat is dead and alive at the same time, so quantum things can be in multiple states at once. And while that's true in some respects, what it is really saying is we don't really understand exactly how this stuff works. And there's a, a, a thing called quantum entanglement where uh, you, know, you can talk about it being uh, a weird uh, effect where things affect each other over huge distances instantaneously where they shouldn't be able to do so because, you know, Einstein's relativity tells us that you can't do that. And, it's spooky um, action at a distance. Yeah, exactly. So, so we're in a position where we sort of just say, okay, that's how it is. And Richard Feynman famously said, don't ask yourself, how can it be like that? It just is like that. And so we sort of accept it. But actually, um, there are some people, and Sabine's one of them, who are saying, well, there are some hidden assumptions that we, we need to think about you know, and need to maybe address uh, that have kind of just been brushed under the carpet. And I think it's a really, it, her take on it is a really interesting one. And, and you have to remember that quantum theory is like 100 years old now, and we're effectively still in pretty much the same philosophical understanding as we were in the 1930s or the 1940s, maybe. Um, in the, you know, people have just said, oh, I believe this, you know, I, I believe in the multiverse. I believe there's like every time the quantum thing happens and it sort of happens in a separate universe. And other people will say, no, I believe that actually uh, what's going on is we haven't found the hidden variables that are behind this you know, weird effect. And, and if we look more closely, we'll find the reason for this. Uh, and there's no kind of way to tell between them because we haven't been able to progress the experiments or anything like that. There are reasons to um, ask difficult questions, which is what Sabine is so good at doing. She's phenomenal. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend her channel to anybody, as well as Matt Dowds. His channel is phenomenal as well. His coverage of black holes is unlike anything I've ever seen. So they're all good. And I appreciate that they can critique each other and respond well. So good on them both, I, I thought. Yeah, and no, just uh, talking about the f uh, physics thing, like, you know, these unspoken assumptions, right before we get back to the book, I've always found it fascinating that like, if I take uh, two electron beams and like, let's say I separate them by one meter and I fire particles, and that the particles can interact um, at all. Like sometimes I wonder like where the information of the location comes from. Like how is how is the base code of the universe stored? But like that just touches other stuff. I mean, but um, just, I'll just comment on that. It's a it's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, you because know, we think about you know say separating these things by a meter, and and we live in this space and time in Einstein's sort of space and time where we have three dimensions of space and one dimension of time. And, you know, we, you know, it sort of seems to be, you know, that's it to us. But actually, you know, when you do the maths in, in physics, or say string theory and trying to work that out, um, whether you're, you know, you're looking at the multiverse or whether you're looking at quantum entanglement, it seems to be that there's something, it's not quite a full explanation to say, oh, you know, there's three dimensions of space and one of time. So entanglement seems to um, involve, in some ways, uh, something that acts outside of space and time. Um, oh yeah, we did an episode on Bell's theorem. Yeah, so so Bell's theorem exactly sort of depending on certain assumptions that you make seems to suggest that there's kind of something outside of space and time which allows these kinds of strange correlations to occur, and and you can say oh it's you know it's outside of space and time or you can say it's just weird, um, which is probably what you know Feynman would have said is like stop asking difficult questions. And the, but the, you know there's so much left to discover really, which I find really great. I you know I, I love the fact that after. So many hundred years of doing physics, you know, we, we've, we've just uncovered more and more problems. Oh, yeah. And every time we think it all solved, it seems like somebody yeah. discovers something that throws a wrench in the work. Yeah, exactly. Like, I know that people thought that physics was solved with the electron formula and that wasn't. Well, I mean, at the end of the 19th century, uh, somebody famously said, you know, all the physics is solved now. And, you know, there's sort of nothing, there's really nothing to do but, you know, fill in a few small gaps. And then along comes Einstein with relativity and, <laughs> and quantum theory. And in, in like inside about 10 years, that whole thing had been blown apart. And it seems like almost we're seeing that with dark energy now. It's 
like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Like yeah. Um, how it's nobody knows what it is and it looks like it's not a large scale effect. It looks like it's actually something. Well, exactly. So, so you know, we have uh, this anomaly where you've basically got 96% of the universe is in a form that we don't understand. You know, some of it's dark matter and some of it's dark energy. And there are those who think that it's actually because when we um, do the equations, and you know, back to maths again, really, um, when we do the equations and, and sort of try and work out how to mathematize the universe, maybe we've got some maths missing that we're just not able to do yet, and we need to invent some new mathematics. Uh, that will allow us to, you know, get much better solutions that, that make sense of these anomalies that we see in experiments. And, you know, that's actually something that I wanted to touch on is just, that's what feels, you, you use the phrase, invent new mathematics. <laughs> and sometimes it still messes with my brain a little bit that you can just do that, that there are just these things in the world that sometimes are very tangible that we can make new th rules to describe, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of mathematicians say it's discovered, not invented. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it can't be, becomes a matter of taste, possibly, uh, the way you want to talk about that. But, you know, when I look at, yeah, like Newton and Leibniz with calculus, it really looks to me like they invented it. They, you know, they didn't discover it, but you know, they, it seems to me they constructed something that it was an entirely new tool for mathematicians to work with. So it seems to me um, maths, it just seems to be invented. And I think it's usually invented for strong reasons, like you know, we need this solution to this. So, so you know, if you're talking about like quadratic equations or, or quartic equations, the solutions for those had to be kind of you know, discovered and then the people who able, were able to do that were then um, able to kind of use those for um, banking and finance. And, and, you know, it was basically a new way to make money, you know, to predict how much you, you could make out of, you know, loaning money to a certain, a certain rate and things like that. So I think most mathematics seems to come out of really good motivations for like, I need to do this thing and there isn't a tool available. And somebody, and it's really rare. I mean, you know, what happened with calculus is extraordinary. And you know, there's an amazingly powerful tool that obviously we're you know we're using all the time now. But there was a time when it kind of wasn't there, and and somebody had to sort of you know, I would say invent it, and I, and, and others I guess would say somebody had to discover these relationships. But but you know, for me, it, it's I, I think it's invention. Right. And we also get into. Uh, oh, sorry. What? Oh no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say we also kind of get into semantics uh, there too, because um, you know what, what is um, what is the difference really between an invention and um, a, a discovery? I mean, you could say that a discovery is a description of something um, new, and when you're dealing with something like math, maybe it's uh, maybe it's like arguing about like you know which side of the coin uh, fall, uh, should fall up, you know, like uh, yeah. where it's like um, yeah, uh, okay, yeah, where, yeah. where it gets to. Oh, sorry, maybe, you... maybe I shouldn't worry about it. I just worry about offending mathematicians, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that there's a big difference. Uh, physicists tend to say that mathematics is uh, invented and mathematicians tend to say it's discovered. Yeah, yeah. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, Breaking Math fans. First, I want to thank you for listening. I have an important message for everyone. You can start your own podcast right now with Anchor. Anchor lets you create and distribute your own podcast. Just get an idea, record, and upload. It's just that easy. Anyone can do it. I'm on my way to accomplishing my dream, and you can too. Just get on your device's app store and download Anchor. 
It contains everything you need to make a podcast. With Anchor, you can put your podcast on all the big platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Reach the whole world with Anchor. Best of all, Anchor is free. You have nothing to lose with a free platform. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I love the relationship uh, historically between mathematicians and physicists. Oh, I was going to say we did episode four on that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it called again? Language of the Universe. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. I recently heard a mathematicians versus physicists joke. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. Have you guys heard the the sheep joke about so. um, chemists? Oh, you have? Okay, no, okay. I, said I don't well, think so. Oh, very good. Okay. Well, it has something to do with uh, there's a, a car in, let's say, Scotland, and uh, it's driving through a, a hilly pasture. And, and inside the car, there is um, a chemist, a mathematician, and a physicist. As they're driving around the hill, the, um, the chemist sees a black sheep and says, oh, how about that? In, in, in Scotland, uh, there are black sheep. And then the physicist sighs, so annoyed, and said, ugh. You biochemists know in Scotland, we know that there is at least one black sheep on this hill. And then the mathematician hears that answer and groans and goes, Ugh, you physicists know. In Scotland, we know that there is at least one side of one sheep that is black. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought that's fantastic. You know people like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the whole um, splitter joiner thing. <laughs> yeah. I just, I just, I, I, I love the the arrogance and 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 the um actually. In fact, there's a show done by a a, a, um, a channel called College Humor that has a show called Um Actually, the show of nerds correcting nerds, and I think that's just a fantastic illustration. <laughs> you have to chime in by saying um actually and then correct whatever the host says. So you know, I think it's fantastic. So yeah, yeah. So I got a question. What's your favorite chapter of your book? I'm going to say imaginary numbers. I'm kind of, you know, I, I'm just sort of in awe of these things. Uh, and uh, I sort of, you know, I think in some ways they're, they're the whole reason I kind of got started on this because I, I just couldn't believe when I was, when I was writing the book about Cardano, uh, which is called the Quantum Astrologer's Handbook, um, it was a few years back. I just sort of started to see the power of imaginary numbers. And when I encountered them at school, I remember being like one of those kids who were like, oh, if they're imaginary, what, you know, why are we bothering learning this kind of stuff? And you know, what, what use could it possibly be? And uh, you know, to discover how powerful they are and how they, you know, they literally, you know, my life wouldn't work without, you know, this conversation couldn't happen without imaginary numbers. I think it's just incredible. Oh, yeah, yeah try designing an antenna with them. <laughs> Try to hang an antenna without them, you know. Yeah, On this yeah. podcast, we like square roots of negative one. We also like solutions to quadratics that use um, quaternions. And I know that octonions, actually, we did an episode where we um, talked about how they're essential to the structure of a kind of cosmology. I've seen, I, I think I mentioned in the book that, that uh, there's a Roger Penrose quote where he's like, you know, clearly nature requires us to use complex numbers to describe it. You know, it's, it's like has has to be there. And then um, you've got, you know, the quaternions and, and the octonions seem to be the, the kind of the way in which that happens. And, and people trying to construct um, quantum gravity theories that, that unite quantum physics with relativity, they're, you know, they're using octonions. And, um, and I, I mean, I love that. The fact that, you know, that William Hamilton was like, oh, I wonder if there are any more imaginary numbers and then comes up eventually with the quaternions. And then his friend, like two weeks later or something, comes up with the octonions. And they were like, oh, I wonder if there's any more. And it turns out you literally can't make any more. I mean, it's, it's been proved that, that those are you know, the full sets of, of numbers. And aren't there 16-entry um, 16, uh, 16 ones but uh, that, that aren't um, commutative or like almost anything? Like there's just very rudimentary operations that can be done I think they behave in a very different and non-helpful way, if, uh, if, if that's the case. Gotcha. I'm not entirely sure. But then um, – yeah. so then I discovered that, that – um, this whole quaternion thing uh, was like behind, you know, the Mad Hatter's Tea Party in Alice in Wonderland, and and Charles Dodgson, who wrote that book, um, hated them and thought that you know we should only be teaching stuff that's in Euclid, and it would just been brought into the Oxford um, curriculum, the syllabus for for the students there, and he was a teacher there and was trying to get the dean of the college to stop people teaching quaternions, and the dean of the college's daughter was Alice, and the Alice of Alice in Wonderland. 
And so he kind of wrote this book. Um, he'd been writing this book anyway, and then put in this absurd sort of scene uh, about things, you know, rotating around certain ways and time being missing, and and it's always six o'clock, you know, and and it's just like when you delve into it, and the scholars who've delved into this, um, you find that you know this is kind of um, Charles Dodgson's way of protesting about this new mathematics. And you know, you read this story, and you never know. I mean, I, you know, I only come across that when I was writing the book. I didn't realize that that this was in there. But he's literally, you know, the, these things are so sort of revolutionary and so different to everything in traditional mathematics that this literary protest is going on, you know, right under our noses. And you know, so he would have given the dean of the college this book because it was, yeah, you know, about his daughter, you know, a book featuring his daughter Alice. And, uh, and the, the scholar that I spoke to about this said, you know, it was almost certainly like some kind of, you know, throwing shade, you know, to know that, you know, he'd used his daughter as a character in this book that was actually, you know, having a dig at his mathematics syllabus as well. So, yeah, I, lo I just love the subtle complexity of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. You'd mentioned uh, one thing about uh, one of the, I, I think when we asked you what was the hardest chapter, you talked about Shannon's information theory uh, chapter. That's the first chapter I dove into because I'm a little bit obsessed with Shannon's in information theory. You had mentioned something that made me a little bit crestfallen in that chapter. You talked about that after Shannon um, published his work, there were a lot of people who tried very hard to apply Shannon's information theory to other fields, yeah. including things like biology. Ever since I read uh, Godel Escher Bach and his explanations of how to explain perhaps where consciousness comes from with uh, processes, you know, inside the brain, I've tried to apply Shannon's information theory to that. And then reading that Claude Shannon actively discouraged people from going to, I was like, really? Oh, man. I, I, I think what's interesting about that is I think immediately everyone saw that this was a kind of revolutionary way of looking at something. And of course, so much of what we deal with in science is information, right? You, know, you, you get sort of um, these inputs and outputs in, in terms of, you know, even in terms of experiments, you know, you, you do something, you get an output and you kind of in, make inference about it. And I think what Shannon found was that straight away, everyone was trying to kind of find ways to mathematize literally everything, you know, using his information theory. And so I think his sort of view was, whoa, 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 you know, that, that's, it's literally to, you know, sort of, you know, help us to encode, you know, signals and, and that kind of thing, not necessarily, you know, to, to do all this other stuff. But um, at the same time, of course, you know, consciousness researchers are aware that there is, you know, these signals in our brains, you know, there is a, a passage of information around the, you know, the cortex, you know, there's clearly something going on that's akin to sending a signal down a wire. And so, of course, you know, consciousness researchers are going to want to use information theory. And, and the leading theory of consciousness at the moment is integrated information theory, which is IIT by uh, Giulio Tononi's um, ideas. You know, despite Shannon's kind of reticence for people to do this, I think people have just plowed on anyway. And I think they're probably right to, because I think it's, it's a very profound and, and far-reaching um, theory, and probably more far-reaching than Shannon even himself appreciated. Sorry, I was going to ask you, the name of, you had said somebody is the leading researcher in consciousness. Will you say that name one more time? Oh, Maybe so, we can put it in our notes. So what I said was, um, this guy called Giulio Tononi uh, came up with an idea called integrated information theory, which is kind of the leading theory behind consciousness. So there's, there's a few theoretical approaches to explaining consciousness, none of which, I should say, really are fully doing the job yet. But it, it's kind of the most accepted and the, probably the most worked on one. I was also struck by, um, like you were saying, um, people interact with information theory all the time and uh, it's not really understood or taught in schools, which I think is fascinating because it really isn't that much harder to understand than logarithms, which like, you know, if you understand multiplication and addition, you understand logarithms, um, you know, if if you're taught um, properly. I mean, we use uh, the, the word byte like constantly. I mean, nobody uses Nat or Shannon anymore, but. Yeah. Not that I know of. I mean, I guess you would ask the question is, do, do people, do school students need to learn information theory? And they, I guess they probably don't. These things take time to hit the syllabus and hit the curriculum, don't they? And, and information theory is, is quite possibly the kind of newest innovation in some ways. And I would imagine that educators are just, you know, not yet ready to include it. I mean, it, 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 you, know, you learn it when you get to university if you're doing that technical discipline that requires it. And um, it's probably a lot to, to put on. I mean, already, you know, uh, I know in the US, you know, students learn calculus 
and, and that's kind of the pinnacle, and that's you know quite off-putting for a lot of people already. So you know maybe information theory would be a step too far. Oh yeah, I just I wish that um I mean you talk about the American education system, which is broken in so many ways. Um, yeah, but um. One thing that really struck me about information theory, just learning it, was how often it could be applied. Like, I think about it constantly now. Like, sometimes I think about the amount of, uh, what what is it, the thing that you send a, a bit of information to a black hole and it increases by one square plank area? There's just something obviously so fundamental to it that I wish that we had more... Uh, more time for exploratory courses, things like that. I honestly think that the first like five or six years of math education should just be concepts and stories. Like, I don't think people should even touch. If you're not the type of age, I think, where you'd balance a checkbook, I don't think that you should really bother learning like quadratic equations yet. Well, that's that's a really interesting perspective. I mean, the, I think the educator's perspective would be uh, you need to test them at the end of the year and you can't test them on stories. Oh, yeah, but you totally could. Uh, you could uh, have them uh, write uh, write uh, comprehensive e uh, essays and then like, you know, grade them on that. Plus, you would have people really thinking about math as a real thing, the real thing that it is, rather than this thing I have to do for an hour uh, a day that I hate. You know, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think actually, you know, when people learn particularly the stories behind math, I think, you know, you can apply them in interesting ways and it, it might take you into other disciplines and you can imagine just people sort of rather than learning or, or rather not learning the math because they, they just can't sort of get their heads around it and they don't want to learn it and they, they sort of get this mental block and you know, we haven't talked about math anxiety which is a huge problem in the classroom. Um, you know, if, if you had people sort of talking about how math was progressed and what it was used for then I think you know you, you give people tools to uh, apply in other areas of their life and they might not go into technical disciplines but they might sort of still use that appreciation of of the human story to kind of uh, you know applying in other areas yeah because it strikes me that we teach a uh, language in a way that appeals to everyone science in a way that appeals to more people but it seems like we only we, we teach mathematics in a way that it seems to be only aimed at people who are profoundly mathematically minded um, for them to get any enjoyment yeah I, I, I completely agree with that and I, I think there is an issue over how much math you need to learn uh, to be able to negotiate things in life, like you know, shopping, you know, disc understanding, you know, discounted things in supermarkets, balancing your checkbook, as you say, um, knowing like what a four percent pay rise means, you know, if you're in the workplaces, like, you know, and those are kind of really important aspects of math. And then people who are going to go on to technical careers, obviously, you know, and and love it and and find it easy to do, then they're going to just like progress anyway. You know, there are certainly people here in the UK who are suggesting that there should be a, a kind of qualification of you know, numeracy, maths for living, rather than just like you know, passing a, an exam at 16 and that being the kind of pass or fail. You know, there's a whole chapter in Richard Feynman's book, Surely You Must Be Joking, Mr. Feynman, where he talks about conversations between himself as a physicist and one of his eclectic artistic friends, and they made uh, attempts to teach each other each other's worlds. And I think in the chapter, uh, the artistic guy does a lot better job getting Feynman to appreciate art than the than than uh, Feynman does getting the artistic guy to appreciate anything with with um, physics, which I found disappointing because I consider right. myself to be an artist who loves uh, physics. But I I, I love the, the the conversation about the, there's a term you know in uh, here in uh, America I, I don't know how ubiquitous this term is, but it, or the, the, this phrase where it's they talk about explaining um, physics for poets, but also you could have poetry for physicists. You know what I mean? And just like try to meet in the middle there. So. Which, which I think this book, you know, your book does a, a, a great job with and other things as well. Oh, yeah. And I, I just uh, to add, just to tack on to that, um, the, the chapter on logarithms, I feel like if I hadn't understood logarithms before going in, I would have a much better chance of like, you know, learning all the formulas after reading that chapter. And which is kind of the same goal that we have uh, with our podcast, um, like uh, the, the episodes we try to we try to I'm kind of be like, you know, Nova for math. Um, yeah. But uh well, it, it, it's um. So the, I mean, the logarithms is an interesting thing because that chapter, in some ways, you don't need to do logarithms today. You know, it's all in the calculator. So you put, punch a button on the calculator, and you kind of you know have that thing there. And you know, you almost don't need to know what that is. Just you, you just need to know that that is the button you need to push. But for me, oh yeah, and that's I think that yeah, you know, it was so fundamental and and so transformative when it was invented. And it was originally invented 
to uh, make astronomers' lives easier, and then it started making sailors' lives easier as they did their calcul celestial calculations. And then you find that actually, you know, all of science is kind of built on it. A Newton, so, so you know, from the logarithm you get the slide rule, and then you know, Newton invented his own slide rule, and um, and and Stevenson invented a, a slide rule to power the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And, and Enrico Fermi always carried a slide rule when he was doing his you know, atomic bomb calculations. And you would think, this thing, this little thing, the logarithm, was at the center of so many kind of world events, you know, historical events of, of huge significance. And I think that's why you need to learn about logarithms. Not, not, you can just push the button on the calculator if you like, but I think you, know, you get a much sort of broader perspective on, on humanity if you understand that this kind of innovation, doing this kind of work, to create logarithms actually change the world over the next sort of 200 years. That's the thing that I think um, with the technology we have nowadays, I think it's much more like um, useful to know how to operate a calculator. I, I, I used to tutor math quite often and I tutored someone um, who knew how to do like, you know, write out like multiplication and all this stuff, um, like, you know, could do all the little algorithms, but didn't understand on a fundamental level what multiplication was. Yeah. I had to uh, use pebbles uh, to teach this 20 something year old person with an incredible amount of math anxiety, a completely unfair amount um, that I hate. See I, it, it disgusts me to see, honestly, so many people with math anxiety because it makes me realize that they are taught math abusively, uh, to uh, put it bluntly. Yeah, that's an interesting word to use, actually. Uh, because, I, I mean, I was having a conversation with a friend last night who said exactly that. Uh, uh, we were talking about something, and they were talking about their experience of learning math in school. And it wasn't just math, it was some other things. But they said it was like, it was an abuse. If I got a question wrong, I would get shouted at, and I would get belittled. And, you know, it didn't help me to learn. It just taught me to keep my mouth shut. You know, and And I think, you know, with math anxiety, which is a you know, huge problem. I saw a statistic uh, that was something like 93% of adults in the US uh, feel some sort of sense of alarm if they're presented with something mathematical to do. You know, it's, 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 you know, so we're scarring people at school, it, it seems to me. And, um, and there must be a better way somehow. There must be, and I'm not saying this is all math teachers at all, and I'm not even blaming math teachers. Oh, no. Because I think you know, they have to teach uh, people to get through that, you know, to jump the hoops that, that have to be jumped, you know, to make progress um, through their system. But I think there must be, there must be some kind of way in which we can make math less scary. And, and, and I think these stories and I think uh, the kind of understanding that math doesn't come naturally to us as human beings actually would help. So, you know, I start the whole book by saying, look, you know, we didn't, our brains didn't evolve to deal with numbers. You know, none of the animals deal with numbers in the same way that we do. We just happen to have, have come across a way to sort of adapt some of the circuits in our brain that are normally you know, keeping track of our fingers, and we use them to keep track of numbers. And, and suddenly, you know, we've got this incredibly powerful tool that we've just built on, and we transmit it culturally. You know, so, so nobody's, born learning, you know, nobody's born knowing how to do math, but we very early in their lives, we teach them how to do the basics because it's so incredibly useful. And there are cultures that don't do math and don't count beyond three. Uh, in the Amazon, for instance, you know, there's the Piraha tribe who, who literally just say, you know, they'll count to three. This is where the title of the book comes from. And then they'll say more. So, and that more is kind of everything that we you know, celebrate as math. I think it would be really important for, for students at school to start off by learning that this is hard. This isn't a natural thing. You shouldn't just be able to do it. You know, you're going to have to yeah. sort of think a little bit and, and it's, you're maybe going to have to struggle a little bit, but it's worth it. You know, and, and be a bit more grace, gracious and forgiving towards uh, people who, who struggle with math. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The same way we are with uh, with language. I mean, a lot of times people who have trouble with language, like we shouted at it about um, language for it. Like and, and that's the thing, even with mathematics, I've heard people talk about even their parents. A lot of people uh, here in the United States, I've heard this story from uh, helping them uh, with their math homework at the kitchen table or whatever. And then just like berating them when they get uh, answers wrong, Yeah. Um, which it's just like you get it from both ends. You get it from school and you get it from home with uh, some people, which it just I mean, I guess I I guess there's bigger questions to be asked as well, such as what is the culture that does this? Why does it do that? But um, I guess you get into all this question with math. The alarming thing for me is that if you have uh, children after you are math anxious, so, so anyone who, who leaves school with math anxiety goes on to have a family 
if they help those children with the homework, and, and this has been shown in, in numerous studies, you help those children with their math homework, and, so, and you actually pass on the anxiety. It sort of cascades down the generations, and it's the same if you have math teachers who aren't 100% confident and have a little bit of anxiety. The students will sense this, and, and they, they pick up on it, and they become anxious themselves. And, and the study after study that shows that, you know, if we don't fix this problem, it's never going to go away, right? Because it is being passed on. Oh, yeah, which uh, one uh, trick that I would sometimes use with uh, math students is just to, to sh just because I realized it was an issue of them feeling like they didn't have like enough like mental processing power in some cases. I would just teach them like, you know, some mnemonics tricks having nothing to do with math. I would teach them how to remember like 15 numbers in a row or something like yeah. that. Um, uh, and then they'd be like, wow, I could do that. And it's like, you could totally do that. You could do math, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You listen to Breaking Math, which probably means you're a big nerd, and you're in good company. We're all big nerds here at Breaking Math, and I want to talk to you about Brilliant. Brilliant is a one-stop shop for math and science. They have everything from lectures on number theory to mind-expanding puzzles and exercises. And how do you learn this, you might ask? Through both presented information and problems to solve. After all, you learn best by actively using your knowledge. This week, we want to feature a wonderful course on machine learning. It is one of many courses in data science available on Brilliant. So what are you waiting for? Sign up at brilliant.org slash breaking math. The first 250 listeners get 20% off the annual subscription. That's at, that's brilliant.org slash breaking math. Any last remarks, Michael? Um, I just, uh, I guess the thing I, I would really like people to take away from this book is a sense of uh, wonder, uh, kind of as I was saying about you know, the fact that we are the only species of animal on the planet that does math like this, you know, that, that deals with numbers and, you know, and our brains aren't that different to, you know, the great apes. They're not, they're not like, it's not like orders of magnitude difference. And yet we do this thing which just elevates us so much. And, and all of our elevation, you know, this is my, my whole argument, comes from this ability to kind of just start to deal with numbers. And I, I just think it's an extraordinary thing, you know, that, that we take it for granted, really, that the ability to just, just count and then group numbers and then see shapes and measure shapes. And, yeah, this is powerful stuff. Oh, yeah, it's wonderful brain program. Um, I'm working with uh, um, a lot of uh, local educators, actually, who are interested in podcasting, and I'm actually going to reach out to a lot of math teachers. I bet a lot of them would love your book, especially for giving a little more historical context. And the book perhaps would be recommended, if not for the students, if they're too young, then perhaps for the parents, uh, for that, sure, yeah, especially right. those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will, I'll definitely be plugging your book to that uh, population as well as obviously to our Breaking Math listeners. Our Breaking Math listeners who would like to uh, hear more about you and your ideas, do you have a Twitter or a social media presence? Yeah, so I'm um, Dr. Michael Brooks on Twitter. Okay. All right. Oh, there you are. Oh, cool. I like your profile picture. That's <laughs> I like it. Your hands are up like this, like you're feeding uh, I think somebody. I'm talking. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't keep okay. my hands still when I talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here, same here. What's the book and where can people get it? Uh, so the book is The Art of More, How Mathematics Created Civilization. Uh, it's in all good bookshops. It's on Amazon. It's uh, anywhere you would normally source a book, I would say. You'll find it. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show. Your book is The Art of More, and it can be found wherever books can be found. And you are Dr. Michael Brooks on Twitter. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Merle, any last uh, uh, closing remarks before we close it? Um, I just want to say um, I had a lot of fun and I am glad that I picked your favorite chapter to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. yeah. All right. Again, thank you, sir. We greatly appreciate that. And no uh, with that, I'll go ahead and stop. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChampaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.